British politics might be a dumpster fire right now, but for once, we're starting a show with some good news. Lula is Brazil's president, even if only by a narrow margin. I'll be joined later by an expert in Sao Paulo to explain what it all means. And then we'll turn to the dumpster fire. Or Suella Braverman, as she is otherwise known, and her grim handling of a so-called migrant crisis. Ash Sarkar will be joining me for all of that. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, or Lula, is the new president of Brazil. The result came after a closely fought second round vote against the sitting president, Jair Bolsonaro. The second round vote was tight to the last minute, with Lula eventually prevailing with a two-point lead. That translates to a two-million vote majority for Lula. And it marks the first time since Brazil's return to democracy in 1985 that a sitting president has lost an election. Lula's victory was greeted with rapturous celebrations from his supporters. Crowds filled the streets of Sao Paulo, surging along Paulista Avenue in numbers so large they reportedly swamped the mobile phone signal. There were similarly huge crowds in Rio de Janeiro and in Brasilia, as supporters let off steam after a tense few hours waiting for the final results to come through. Those celebrations were with good reason, because the election wasn't just about personality, but presented a stark choice between two political futures for the nation. On the one hand, there were Bolsonaro's far-right pledges, increased restrictions on speech, opposition to abortion, and the loosening of environmental protections in the Amazon rainforest. On the other, there were Lula's promises to end hunger, tackle Brazil's entrenched economic inequalities, and protect the environment. And that was something Lula stressed again in his victory speech. Vamos retomar o monitoramento e a vigilância da Amazônia e combater toda e qualquer atividade ilegal, seja garimpo, mineração, extração de madeira ou ocupação agropecuária indevida. Ao mesmo tempo, vamos promover o desenvolvimento sustentável das comunidades que vivem na região amazônica. Vamos provar mais uma vez que é possível gerar riqueza Lula's victory comes after a storied political past. In 2002, he became Brazil's first working-class president and took millions out of poverty. When he left office in 2010, after serving his maximum of two consecutive terms as president, his approval ratings stood at 90%. But in 2018, Lula was tried on corruption charges and served 580 days behind bars. While in prison, the far-right Bolsonaro won the presidency and he would go on to oversee a response to the COVID pandemic that led to Brazil having one of the highest death tolls in the world. Lula's conviction was eventually overturned when Brazil's Supreme Court ruled that the presiding judge in the case had been biased against him. And this opened the door for Lula to return to politics, eventually winning this historic third term as president. In his victory speech, the efforts of the state to suppress his politics was also a topic. Ew. A vida inteira sempre achei que Deus sempre foi muito generoso comigo para permitir que eu saísse de onde eu saí para chegar onde eu cheguei. E sobretudo nesse momento em que nós não enfrentamos um adversário. Nós não enfrentamos um candidato. Nós enfrentamos a máquina do Estado brasileiro colocada a serviço do candidato da situação para tentar evitar que nós ganhássemos as eleições. E graças ao povo brasileiro, a quem eu quero agradecer de coração, o povo que votou em mim, o povo que votou no adversário. Those accusations aren't without merit, as the election took place amongst allegations of voter suppression across Brazil. The Washington Post reported this. The Federal Highway Police, an organization closely allied with the right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro, allegedly set up roadblocks to delay voters in the country's impoverished northeast and other centers of support for Lula. G1 and Zero Globo reported Sunday that Bolsonaro asked his justice minister, Anderson Torres, to order the operations. A to the president hoped that the police would be able to prevent possible transportation of Lula's voters by the Workers' Party, the outlet said. In Brazil, it is illegal for parties to transport voters to polls. Eduardo Bolsonaro, a member of Congress and the president's son, seemed to confirm knowledge of the operation on Twitter. We have Operation Flip Vote, he tweeted on Sunday. The Workers' Party has a vote-buying operation and they are upset that the police are working. Number 302 of the penal code says it's a crime to buy food and transportation on election day. Please let the police work and arrest anyone who wants to stop them. Shortly after these reports emerged, a Supreme Court judge ordered the police to remove the roadblocks. 
Bolsonaro supporters haven't been shy about displaying their anguish at Lula's win. And Bolsonaro still hasn't conceded his loss. I'm joined now by Vincent Bevins in Sao Paulo. Vincent, do you expect Bolsonaro to concede this election? And does it matter if he doesn't? I think it matters if it doesn't. Yeah. So Bolsonaro is so far the first sitting Brazilian president to lose re-election in the history of the country. He's also the first president not to recognize a loss or the first candidate uh, in a presidential election not to recognize a loss. He reportedly shot himself in the presidential palace last night, turned off the lights and hasn't didn't speak to anyone. Um, We haven't heard from him at all. Um, It will matter if he eventually concedes, but it seems that his possible paths to a coup d'etat have been mostly closed off. A lot of his allies have recognized the election. Lula has made it very clear that a lot of leaders around the world recognize him as the president-elect. So I don't see an easy way for Bolsonaro to seize power, but the fact that he calls uh, calls into question in any way or refuses to concede loss, I think that does matter, yeah. Does the closeness of the result matter? Or should we just be thinking, look, a win is a win. Lula won the election. It doesn't matter that it was 51-49. I mean, how how nervous are people about the, the extent of, of Bolsonaro's support that still exists in the country? Well, I think that um, we should be very clear that Lula will have a very difficult path ahead of him. Uh, we knew that even before last night's results came in. The Bolsonaroista bloc in Congress, uh, especially the Senate, will be very strong. Bolsonaroismo has control uh, over a lot of state governments. I wrote something about um, this dynamic in the New York Review of Books last week. And it is disappointing uh, for a lot of uh, pro-democracy Brazilians, progressive Brazilians, uh, even center-right Brazilians that believe in the Constitution, that 49% of the country voted for Jair Bolsonaro. So that is that is a real challenge going forward. At the same time, no sitting president has ever lost at all. Um, there are ways in Brazilian politics, and this is true across a lot of South America, to spend a lot of money in the last few months before uh, the election and in the attempts to convert a lot of uh, voters to your side in the, in the last minute. Bolsonaro did this at an unprecedented scale. So he really put his foot on the gas pedal of what could be called terms of vote buying, probably breaking laws in the process. So the surprise to me, the big story is that Lula's back. He was allowed to run for president and that a sitting uh, Brazilian president uh, has been voted out. And let's talk about Lula as president and what's he going to do? What were the key planks that he, he stood on in this election? So Lula didn't elaborate that much in terms of concrete plans. His main message was, uh, and I understand why this would be his main message, because it was an effective one. Um, He said very often, do you remember when I was president? It was better. You had enough to eat. Let's get food back on the table. So in order to accomplish that, he has quite a difficult path ahead of him. The, The economic situation is much more difficult than it was in 2003 when he took over for the first time. He ruled from 2003 to 2010. He will be dealing with very difficult opposition internally and a large part of the country that doesn't believe that democracy is the best way to solve problems uh, at all, that believes that Lula shouldn't be in there no matter what people voted for. So uh, he's going to have to create a congressional coalition, which is something that every president has to do. Lula is historically good at that, but he has also a historically difficult task ahead of him in doing so. And is that because, as I understand it, he's got a pretty sort of motley crew when it comes to his coalition in in Parliament? He's sort of allied with, including up to the centre-right, I think, lots of people who thought, Lula, we don't really share his politics, but at least he's not Bolsonaro. He'll sort of respect the constitution a bit more. But now Lula is elected, they might start becoming more of an internal opposition. Is that is that correct? Yeah, well, every Brazilian president, in the best of circumstances, must deal with a very motley crew in Congress. There are... Uh, dozens of different parties in Congress, some of them are, which are ideologically committed to the left, uh, a couple which are ideologically committed to the right, and a huge number which are kind of up for grabs. That If you can offer them something, they will join a ruling coalition. So even if Bolsonaroismo did not exist, that is what a Brazilian president has to deal with. Now, the largest party in the, the new Congress, which will take 
power in, uh, on January 1st, 2023, is the party that Bolsonaro, did, that Jair Bolsonaro is currently in. Now, that, that matters and it also doesn't. Bolsonaro has been in 10 different political parties throughout his career. The Partido Liberal, the Liberal Party, used to be in uh, Lula's coalition before. The leader of the Senate told me earlier this year that they would be open to being in it again, you know, if things change. So, but there are also a huge wave of people in that party that were elected as Bolsonaristas. So he will have to deal with a small number of allies, a huge number of people that need something from him to join the government, and a small group of people that will be ideologically opposed to him no matter what. We've shown our audience a map which shows that most of the north of the country and the coastal regions are red for, for Lula, and then you've got the south and the west, which are blue for Bolsonaro. What's going on there? Is, it, is there a sort of simple way to explain that divide? The agricultural heartland is pro-Bolsonaro. Uh, the interiors, so the, the areas outside of the cities in the rich southeast are pro-Bolsonaro. And the northeast, which is historically poor, where Lula comes from and which was quite especially benefited by Lula's, Lula's social programs in the last 20 years, is very pro-PT. That's the simplest way to put it. Now, at the same time, Sao Paulo, the largest city in the country, the economic powerhouse of the country, went for Lula. Uh, 53 to 47, while this state went to Bolsonaro. So that's the, the best way to understand it, is the, the parts of the country that rely on exploitation of Brazilian natural resources, the agricultural heartland, uh, have become quite solidly Bolsonarista, whereas Lula is historically strong in the historically poor Northeast. And then in the cities, you, you, you have more support for Lula than you do in the countryside. And I suppose a related question when it comes to exploitation of natural resources, lots of people in the rest of the world are very concerned about the Amazon. People from across the political spectrum actually seem to have breathed a sigh of relief at Lula's re-election because they think he might be able to save the Amazon. Bolsonaro was very much in favor of chopping it down, essentially. How successful can Lula be here? Can Lula save the Amazon for the rest of us? Yeah, the question of saving the Amazon uh, is quite a difficult one, but there is a huge difference between the way these two men uh, would approach that question. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro is somebody that really believes in doing whatever it takes to develop the economy. He would say to his followers, he would say to people out in uh, the countryside, chop down the trees, invade indigenous territories, break laws, kill people if necessary. Um, this is the future of our country. He really admires the United States, actually, in that respect, uh, developing uh, the nation from sea to shining sea, and uh, refusing to show down, slow down for any indigenous person that gets in the way. Now, Lula, of course, was president already. Um, things were not perfect for the environment when he was in power. Um, he put protections in place. Uh, uh, there was some progress made in the PT years in the first two decades of this century. But as he comes back into office now, he knows that what the world cares about his protections for the Amazon. He's going to work very hard with partners in Brazil and partners around the world to try to put together a very robust package. So he's going to, to, to devote a lot of energy to this. A lot of times um, this issue is very difficult to solve from the capital in Brasilia. Uh, it really has a lot to do with local dynamics on the ground, the economics, uh, the economic incentives faced by these small agricultural producers and local economic actors in the Amazon. So it's a very difficult question to tackle but he's going to try to put together something with the international community. Um, we should expect to see something uh, on this front uh, soon after he takes power. Vincent Bevins, thank you so much for joining me from Sao Paulo. Let's go straight to our next story. On Sunday, a man drove 100 miles to an immigration detention facility in Dover. He then threw three petrol bombs at its gates before killing himself in his car. Two people who had been inside the centre suffered minor injuries in the attack. This image, taken by a photographer on the scene, shows the attacker throwing the second petrol bomb device from his car. It looks like a petrol canister with a firework taped to it, so not particularly high-tech, dangerous nonetheless. A wider angle shows the fire from the first device as the second one is thrown. Perhaps surprisingly, the police are not treating this as a terrorist incident. And this is how the Daily Mail reported the attack. Onlookers heard several explosions as all hell broke loose and said the suspect, who has not been named, was laughing as he threw the devices. Two people inside the centre suffered minor injuries. A motive for the attack remains unclear. Now, given the suspect drove 100 miles to throw an incendiary device specifically at a centre known for processing migrants, I'm not sure it should be difficult to decipher a motive here. But there we are. 
The attack follows widespread negative coverage of migrants crossing the channel, but it doesn't seem to have tempered headline writers in Britain. This was the Telegraph's front page the morning after the attack. Migrants side by side in hotels with publics. This is the scare story. You might have to stay in a hotel next to a migrant the day after that attack. And by the morning interview rounds, the attack had become a mere footnote to the so-called migrant crisis. Julia Hartley Brewer is here interviewing Natalie Elphick, the Conservative MP for Dover. We are in extraordinary times. I mean, so many developments when it comes to this story over the weekend, not just hitting that 40,000. We know those official figures will show later today. But um, uh, the, the horrific petrol bomb attack on the Manston Migrant Processing Centre, uh, which did injure some, uh, very, very frightening. The man then later went and committed suicide in his car. The pressure on hotels... Um, about tens of thousands of these largely young men um, being put up in hotels. Uh, the Daily Telegraph reporting that migrants are going to be side, side, side and side with the public in hotels instead of whole hotels being bought up. Millions, even billions over the year being spent on this. Why do you think the government hasn't got to grips with this? Well, I mean, a small boats crisis is clearly out of control and an entirely fresh approach is now needed. Um, what, what's been happening is simply not working. And I think that's for two reasons. Uh, firstly, because every single attempt to get on top of this crossing is delayed or thwarted by um, by a, a rag bag of people who seem to want um, open borders and don't seem to want us to get a grip on on this particular situation. Are you talking about the human rights again. lawyers, the, the various charities that are helping these people? Exactly. We've seen people just object to absolutely everything, object to the new laws coming through, object to any agreements put in place, object to uh, all of the efforts of the government to try and tackle this issue. And and that's uh, that's really not on because it puts people's lives at risk crossing the channel. And it also results in this absolutely uncontrolled uh, amount of uh, people arriving that we've now seen, as you say, 40,000 people this year alone. So we should note, Julia Hartley Brewer in her question did call the attack horrific and Elphick tweeted on Sunday that she was deeply shocked by the incident. But Elphick didn't even mention the attack in her answer and went straight on to deliver anti-migrant talking points, which, by the way, completely went unchallenged. But that was the right-wing Murdoch-owned talk TV. Let's see if the BBC did any better. What we're talking about here, although we're talking about Manston, these are people who have crossed the channel in small boats and we're almost reaching the point where there are uh, 40,000 people so far this year who have crossed the channel. An attack on Western Jet Foil Facility in Dover yesterday, where asylum seekers are being processed after being rescued from small boats, has again raised concerns in the region. Three petrol bombs were thrown by a man who then killed himself. The incident followed reports that asylum seekers had entered people's homes when they came ashore looking for help. Simon Jones has been speaking to residents. Well, it's just a joke, isn't it? It's just a joke. I mean, they say they could stop it quite easily if they wanted to, but I don't think they want to. It's just a case of economics at the end of the day. They take a lot of risk. I mean, they must be very, very desperate. They can die, you know. They, they just uh, want to be somewhere where they are safe and secure. I haven't got any sympathy for them at all. And the reason being is that a lot of them are not refugees. Come on. So now I've got any time. And we've got enough problems here on our own. Our hospitals, our doctors, our schools. We just haven't got enough space for them. They must be pretty desperate to make that journey across the channel. But 39,000 of them this year is too much. So something has to be done. Well, Nigel Farage was leader of the UKIP, has long campaigned on immigration. Uh, Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, good to have you on the programme. What do you think needs to happen now? Well, there's a huge debate going on here about the symptoms of the problem. You know, the problem isn't that Manston isn't big enough. The problem certainly isn't that the Home Office didn't book hotel rooms. Hotels are full all over the country. I mean, goodness me, two weeks ago, they were even trying to book a castle in Cornwall. The problem is the sheer numbers coming. 990 on Saturday, 468 yesterday. And they're the ones that we know about. So I was listening to that live and my jaw was just on the floor when they introduced their expert guest on a piece about a petrol bomb attack on a migrant centre being Nigel Farage. Now, that's probably the person who has done more than anyone in Britain to radicalise people against asylum seekers. And I listened to the whole interview 
He was never once challenged on that. So he wasn't invited on to have a hostile interview. Do you feel bad that you're doing you know, shows every night on GB News at 7pm where all you do is list all the crimes that migrants have, have committed? You, know, you handpick all of these crimes and if it's by someone who's not white, then it, comes, it appears on your show. If they're white and British, you don't care about it. There's no accountability there. It's inviting him as, as an expert. Completely bizarre and completely unforgivable, actually, I think. I'm joined now by Ash Sarkar. Um, Ash, have you ever seen what looks very much like a terrorist attack be reported in this way? Unfortunately, yes. This is kind of familiar characteristic of how mainstream media covers far-right terrorism. Shortly after a far-right terrorist incident, we had Newsnight getting generation identity on the show, being interviewed largely without challenge, in a really quite cosy manner. Similarly, when you had the Finsbury Park mosque attack perpetuated by Darren Osborne, the full dimensions of that attack, the fact that he'd intended to find Sadiq Khan, Jeremy Corbyn, those things were downplayed because that would have showed that there is a connection between racist violence and a kind of right-wing paranoia in the face of left-wing and progressive politicians. So, Unfortunately, the coverage of far-right terrorist attacks tends to be really quite dreadful, but there's another specific reason why the press don't want to cover this kind of story properly. And that is because the level of anti-asylum sentiment doesn't really track with the numbers of people coming here claiming asylum. What it does track with is the frequency and the tenor of media coverage of the issue. And this isn't something that we're only seeing now. This was also a defining feature of the new Labour era, where you had tabloid and media scare stories, which were being picked up and reinforced by politicians responding to them. You also saw increases in racially motivated hate crime. So one example of this in the early 2000s was Peterborough. Peterborough was subject of Daily Mail exposés, Britain's Asylum Menace, they're all here, they've all got flashy phones and nice clothes and all the rest of it. What you then saw were a series of racist attacks, which included arson attacks, uh, beatings with metal bars, um, assaults, which included concrete blocks being dropped on people. And the Conservative mayor of Peterborough at the time, reinforcing this narrative, of the asylum scourge by talking about Peterborough being turned into a crime-infested hellhole. And so that exact blueprint is something that we're seeing playing out right now with how Natalie Elphick is talking about people in her own constituency. Rather than doing her job, which is representing the people who live in her community, she's feeding this anti-asylum press frenzy with all of the talking points that they want to hear. It's also something which is being picked up and you know, run with by the Home Secretary, which is the kind of pattern that you saw under New Labour, only, you know, nastier, meaner and backed up with even worse policy if that's possible. Everything that Nigel Farage has said, by the way, is total horseshit. The reason why there is so much overcrowding in asylum detention and processing facilities at the moment is because there is a massive backlog with dealing with the cases. And the backlog is not something which is which has a strong correlation to the number of people coming over in small boat crossings or indeed seeking asylum through other means. The backlog is because the Conservatives do not want to look like they are helping people claim asylum, whereas most people who come to this country, they do have genuine asylum claims and the Home Office is doing their best to restrict their access to legal representation and restrict their ability to claim the asylum that they are lawfully entitled to. The only way in which you can start to change this political environment, which is a vicious circle, because the more you crack down on asylum, actually the more hostile public sentiment becomes, is for someone to be brave enough to change the conversation and say, hang on, this is all a load of bullshit. Most of the people who are coming over here have legitimate claims. There are people who are fleeing war, persecution, exploitation. People who are coming here Yes, they may be coming from France, but that's because, one, actually most people don't. They stay in countries like France, they stay in countries like Germany, they stay in countries like Italy, but they come here because either they've got family or kinship ties, which mean that they could have support while they're here, or they have familiarity with the language, or 
they believe Britain's self-image that it projects around the world that we're much more tolerant than other countries. So people come here looking for us to fulfill our duty of care. And instead, what they find is a howling xenophobic shit show, because for decades now, the press and politicians have colluded to create the nastiest and most violent environment possible for people seeking asylum here. And what do you think about the decision not to investigate this as a terrorist act? I mean, I've seen some articles say, oh, well, he didn't have uh, known connections to the far right. He didn't have like known far right literature or anything. But I mean, does he watch GB News? Because GB News at the moment is just all about how migrants are this invading horde of criminals, right? Now, obviously, GB News doesn't tell you to go throw bombs at asylum seekers. I wouldn't want to imply they did. But in terms of radicalization, the ideology behind hating migrants, seeing them as a threat, and seeing them as a violent threat, actually, is in the mainstream. Did you have the Daily Express? It just seems odd to me that this isn't being called a terrorist attack. I suppose that, you know, the one the one argument you could make is that it, it doesn't seem very planned. I mean, it wasn't a very sophisticated device, but I wasn't aware that was actually a precondition for terrorism anyway. You know, people commit terrorist acts with knives. That's not a, a sophisticated device. I mean, what, what do you make of that decision, Ash? Look, You don't have to be a sociologist to know that terrorism is a constructed category of crime, because when you label something terrorism, what you say is that there is a problem here of ideological motivation and it is bigger than the single individual or individuals who carried out this particular act of violence or this particular criminal offence. And so what gets labelled as terrorism and what doesn't is obviously hugely politically motivated and also limited. And you're right, if you were to look at this as a terrorist incident, even if he doesn't have direct links with known far-right hate organisations, you would say, well, where did he get this ideology it's the mainstream media. And then you would have to ask questions about whether or not our mainstream media is fit for purpose and whether or not we should start introducing uh, regulations in our media environment, which allow communities the same protections that individuals are afforded. That's something which was uh, rejected out of hand by Ipso and Ofcom after the Leveson inquiry. And, it's some, and it means effectively that you can smear whole communities of people with impunity because they don't have uh, recourse to the same kinds of defamation uh, law that individuals do. So treating this as a as a, a, a terrorist incident, the thing that I would say is that there are different kinds of terrorism. So of course, there's the sort of top-down model of terrorism where someone gives an order and someone else carries it out. But there's also something called stochastic terrorism. So stochastic terrorism is almost like randomly generated terrorism. And it is a response to other actors in the political and media environment who who make it more likely for violent acts to occur. So they don't necessarily directly incite by saying, hey, you go out and do this thing. But what they do is that they pump out misinformation, lies, smears, scaremongering type rhetoric in order to make it more likely that acts of violence happen. And I think that you definitely see that when it comes to handling of the asylum issue. I also think that you see it at the moment in the States when it comes to handling of gender identity and transgender issues. There is a pattern of language and media coverage, which is alarmist, which is frightening, which casts people who are involved, who are vulnerable and are in need of care as being deviant, criminal, terrorist, dangerous, you know, not belonging here. And if you keep pumping that into the public sphere, what do you expect people to do? Because, you know, If you believe what the media are saying, if you believe what the Home Secretary is saying, she literally said today in the Commons that there is an invasion happening on our South Coast. And if you believe those things and take them seriously, well, what wouldn't you do? What wouldn't you find morally justifiable? What act of violence wouldn't you undertake to protect what you see as your homeland? So these are all all consequences of an intensely racist, xenophobic, and hateful media environment, which makes acts of terrorism a lot more likely. Let's move on. The Manston Asylum Centre in Kent has the capacity to hold a maximum of 1,600 people, and any one person should be kept there for a maximum of 24 hours. But as of last night, there were 4,000 people detained at the centre, with some families having been kept there for three to four weeks. 
The conditions sound appalling, with families sleeping on mats on the floor, and there have been outbreaks of scabies and diphtheria. That's a highly contagious and potentially very serious bacterial infection. So how did this horrid situation arise? Well, according to the Sunday Times, this is all happening because Suella Braverman refused to book alternative accommodation for asylum seekers, and so Manston could not move them on. And apparently that was even after Braverman was advised by multiple civil servants that to continue detaining migrants in Manston would be a breach of the law. The Sunday Times quoted a number of sources with knowledge of the situation. One told them this. Three weeks ago, she was told directly by Home Office officials of the illegality of the site. It is an unofficial detention centre. She knew exactly what she was doing and she still went ahead with it. She was also told at the same time that this could lead to a public inquiry. So another source, this time a senior Whitehall source said this, the law has been broken. It is an entirely illegal situation. You can't just detain people. The department is basically in despair. And then they have a government source saying this, when they get there, people are supposed to be processed and then released. They have their biometrics taken and should be sent to accommodation paid for by the home office, which means a hotel, or they are granted immigration bail. They can only hold someone if there is a reasonable prospect of their removal from the country in a sensible time frame. She was refusing to sign off on bail or pay for hotels, which means she was illegally detaining people. There is no legal grounds for them to be detained. Officials have been put in an impossible position because they can't release people without Suella releasing the money. This has been going on for more than three weeks. So that looks at best like a complete abdication of responsibility from the Home Secretary. And Roger Gale, the Tory MP for North Thanet, which covers the Manston facility, went even further. There are simply far too many people there, and this situation should never have been allowed to develop. And I'm not sure that it hasn't almost been developed deliberately. Deliberately? Why? It appears, I was told that the Home Office was finding it very difficult to secure hotel accommodation. I now understand that this was a policy issue and that a decision was taken not to book additional hotel space. Now, Nick, that's like driving a car down a motorway, seeing the motorway clear ahead. Then there's a car crash and then suddenly there's a five-mile tailback. The car crash was the decision not to book more hotel space. A decision, to be clear, taken directly by the Home Secretary? I believe that is so, but I'm not sure which Home Secretary, whether it was Ms Patel or Mrs Braverman. As for which Home Secretary is responsible, Alex Wickham at Bloomberg has since said this. Sources say there is a clear paper trail of emails showing Patel kept the hotel policy. Braverman stopped it against advice and Shapps then reinstated it. This will emerge at an inquiry and show Braverman acted unlawfully. Multiple sources say... Now, it's been suggested the motive for such a decision could be to try and deter more asylum seekers crossing the channel or to encourage Home Office staff to speed up the processing of migrants. Now, neither seem like they would plausibly work. People have already risked their lives to come here. And the reason processing has slowed to a snail's pace is because of budget cuts, not workers dragging their heels. Braverman was today asked an urgent question in the House of Commons where she said this about the accusations that she'd ignored legal advice. I foresaw the concerns at Manston in September and deployed additional resource and personnel to deliver a rapid increase in emergency accommodation. To be clear, like the majority of the British people, I am very concerned about hotels, but I have never blocked their usage. Indeed, since I took over, 12,000 people have arrived, 9,500 people have been transferred out of Manston or Western Jet Foil, many of them into hotels. And I've never ignored legal advice. As a former Attorney General, I know the importance of taking legal advice into account. At every point, at every point, at every point, Madam Deputy Speaker, I have worked hard to find alternative accommodation to relieve the pressure at Manston. What I have refused to do is to prematurely release thousands of people into local communities without having anywhere for them to stay. She said quite categorically she hasn't ignored legal advice. Now, we've heard a lot about lying to the Commons being breach of the ministerial code and people having to resign. Now, there's a lot of sources saying she did ignore legal advice and she's saying to Parliament she didn't. So, you know, that, that, that could be a developing story. I don't know. 
Later, in the response to questioning by Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper, Braverman pulled out this shocker. Let's be clear about what's really going on here, Madam Deputy Speaker. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. Some 40,000 people have arrived on the south coast this year alone, many of them facilitated by criminal gangs, some of them actual members of criminal gangs. So let's stop pretending that they are all refugees in distress. The whole country knows that that is not true. And it's only the honourable members opposite who pretend otherwise. Madam Deputy Speaker, we need to be straight with the public. The system is broken. Illegal migration... Illegal migration is out of control and too many people are more interested in playing political parlour games, covering up the truth, than solving the problem. Now it should be fairly obvious that an excuse for Suella Braverman is not that these people weren't all refugees. Now even, you know, even if none of them were refugees, she's still broken the law. But on the sort of, you know, the simple ethical point she's making is that we don't deserve the same duty of care to people who aren't refugees. Well, if only half of them are refugees, right, then you're still keeping a hell of a lot of people in illegal, horrendous conditions where they're at risk of catching very, very serious bacterial chest infections. Now, obviously, I mean, I don't need to say how disgusting it is to talk about people coming here for a better life or to flee persecution as an invasion. Ash, I want your thoughts on this. What do you make of this whole story. I mean, Suella Braverman seems quite confident that she can just ride this out. I'm tough on, on migrants and I'm willing to, to break the law to get my way. Well, the reason why she's confident in being able to ride it out is because really she's merely the latest in a long line of home secretaries who've staked their political career on pandering to right-wing anti-asylum moral panics. And that's something that's a lot older than, you know, the we Sunak administration. And it's even a lot older than this particular run of Tory governments. And I think you can really see it start to kick off around the early 2000s, in particular 2003, after Rebecca uh, Wade at the time, now Rebecca Brooks, took over at The Sun. And the right-wing tabloids made anti-asylum hysteria a real cornerstone of their bashing new Labour projects. Now, rather than standing up to a lot of that rhetoric, which at the time in the early 2000s was explicitly racist, there was a Mr. Men cartoon run in the sun one day, which had uh, various racist cartoons, which included Mr. Yardy, a black Rastafarian who had a gun in one hand and a spliff in the other, and also Mr. Asylum Seeker, who was portrayed as being Albanian, a pimp and uh you know someone with like about three gold teeth in his head that was the kind of uh press environment in in the 2000s and rather than standing up to it what did the you know progressive center left do it totally kowtowed to that rhetoric in fact that there was collusion between David Blunkett and The Sun in terms of running their Asylum Madness Week, which meant that David Blunkett could come in and promise tougher measures. Now, that was the kind of the mood music. And I think what's, you know, almost unfortunate for Suwala Braverman is that she's not doing anything which is that different from her predecessors. Because yes, Priti Patel might have continued the hotel policy, but, you know, she and Sajid Javid before her also oversaw horrendous conditions for asylum seekers, including in 2018, a spate of suicides by Eritrean teenagers who'd come to this country unaccompanied. They'd been, you know, essentially left to rot in asylum accommodation, which was not fit for purpose. And, you know, these were traumatized young men fleeing forced conscription. And they were abandoned to, you know, mental health crises, self-harm and eventually suicide. And that was going on with nary a peep from political journalists. You had some journalists covering this beat, that Guardian and The Independent, but political journalists didn't really touch the story at all. Along comes Suella Braverman, who isn't necessarily 
more xenophobic than her predecessors, but, you know, she is thunderingly stupid and the lobby have turned against her. So the kind of things which would have just passed without comment, such as horrendous conditions in migrant processing centres, you know, the spread of diseases, lack of access to legal representation, those things which have been the norm at places like Yarlswood and Brook House and Colnbrook, they're now drawing the attention of political journalists. So in a way, Suella Braverman, I think she almost looks a bit puzzled at some of the hostile reception that she's getting from sections of the press. And that's because the rules have changed on her. And that's because the lobby have really, uh, you know, turned against the Conservatives after Liz Truss decided to crash the economy into a wall. But this is the kind of thing which has been going on for a really long time. And if what you want is to have a kinder and more humane system in place, then getting rid of this Home Secretary won't be enough. You have to look at the principles which are undergirding the way in which asylum and immigration policy is run. And the main principle is make life as nasty for asylum seekers as you can in the hope that it's going to discourage other people from making the crossing here. But what what we found is that you, you make the conditions nastier and it's not going to discourage people because they're coming here for really good reasons. And if you're somebody who has, you know, fled overland from a war or being persecuted, you're not going to let a home secretary stop you from being able to settle here and find some safety. So nastier immigration policy doesn't actually reduce asylum numbers at all. The thing that you should do both morally and also practically is expand safe and legal routes for people to claim asylum here. You manage as many claims in the community as you possibly can. So you don't treat people, uh, you know, like they're prisoners and lock them up for indefinite periods of time. And also change some of the law, allow asylum seekers to work while their claims are being processed, because then you bring them into the regulated legal economy, which means that they've got minimum wage provisions, workers' statutory rights, and it means that there's less pressure on the welfare system and you're not forcing them into the grey or the underground or the unregulated economy. These are all common sense policies, but because it flies in the face of the narrative which has been built up for well over 20 years now, there aren't going to be politicians who are brave enough to stand up for it. I mean, it's interesting because you, you mentioned there that, you know, Westminster journalists are being a bit harder on Braverman than they have been on, on previous Home Secretaries. It doesn't always mean they're siding with the rights and dignity of asylum seekers. It's what Robert Peston tweeted today. It's a part of a, a longer thread, um, but these stood out to me. Under English law, not European human rights law, the maximum length of stay is supposed to be 24 hours. There are some asylum seekers at Manston who have been there for three to four weeks. There is an assumption that charities specialising in help for asylum seekers will sue the government for keeping asylum seekers at Manston longer than the maximum 24 hours. As Home Office source told me, this creates prospect for Sunak's government that it will be forced to pay out maybe £5,000 or £6,000 each, not to those fleeing persecution in dangerous countries, but, for example, to Albanian economic migrants, many of whom may be criminals. And this, is not, this is not a Nigel Farage tweet. This is the political editor of ITV. So he's saying this, this money would be paid out not to those fleeing persecution. I don't, why would it not be? Many of these people will be fleeing persecution, even if not 100% of them are, many of them will be. So why is he saying not to those fleeing persecution in dangerous countries, but for example, to Albanian economic migrants, many of whom may be criminals? Why, why is he at the example, or the completely hypothetical example, by the way, that you've chosen? There have been lots and lots of discussion of these are all Albanians, it's not really refugees nor asylum seekers. Now, that is relevant. I mean, there isn't a war going on in Albania. I think many people are trafficked, and that's why many people do ultimately get asylum, even if they're from Albania, because it's not so much that they were in a war zone, it's that they've been trafficked by criminal gangs. But all I've seen today is just lots and lots of political editors not really doing any research on this and just repeating what they've been told by some people who seem to be very hostile to migrants, either in the Tory party or in the Home Office. So it's all very unpleasant. And then they go to Nigel Farage as an expert. Let's go straight to our next and final story. As Prime Minister, Liz Truss was a total disaster, but it turns out she didn't suddenly become dangerously useless when she took on the role of Prime Minister. That's because she was also an absolute liability in her previous job. The Mail on Sunday has reported 
this. So Kremlin hacked Truss's mobile. And then the subheading, blackmail fears as Putin spies are suspected of stealing messages from XPM's phone, now locked in a safe. Now, the hack is reported to have taken place in the middle of the leadership race, become Tory leader, and while Truss was foreign secretary. According to sources within the security services, the hackers downloaded a year's worth of messages from Truss's phone. There were exchanges with international politicians, which included sensitive discussions about arms shipments to Ukraine. And there were also private conversations between Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, including criticisms of the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So how did this hack happen? Well, it's because Truss seems to have been conducting much of her government business on her personal and so not very secure mobile phone. A member of Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee told the Daily Mail this. On the face of it, it looks extremely serious. The protocols around using secure lines have been in place for years. Why on earth was the Foreign Secretary using her personal mobile? Frankly, it beggars belief. So how did the government respond to finding out about this security breach? Well, the Mail on Sunday article doesn't inspire much confidence. So they write this. A source with knowledge of the incident said yesterday that the security breach caused absolute pandemonium. Boris was told immediately, and it was agreed with the Cabinet Secretary, that Simon Case, that there should be a total news blackout. Allies of mistrust said she was worried that if news of the hat leaked, it could derail her chance of claiming the premiership, adding... She had trouble sleeping until Mr. Case imposed a news blackout. Now, obviously, a leak like this would have been hugely embarrassing to the government. And if it had been made public, we would probably have been spared Truss's car crash premiership. But Liz Truss was Johnson's preferred candidate to take over as prime minister. You have to wonder, would he have been so forgiving if it had been Rishi Sunak's phone? Truss's phone is also, this is a good detail in the story, so compromised that according to former military intelligence officer Philip Ingram, Ms. Truss's phone will be in a secure government location, which means a secure cage where the device can be forensically examined by experts without the hackers knowing. So it's sort of this radioactive device which can't get out of, I mean, it's as if the phone was some sort of radioactive device, which has to be in a very secure cage. Ash, what do you make of this story? How big a deal is it? I just find it quite funny, really, that the Tories make a big song and dance about how only they can be trusted with national security, but they can't even be trusted with their own phones. So you've got Liz Truss's phone being hacked by the Russians. You've got Suella Braverman uh, accidentally sending confidential ministerial documents to the wrong person just because they've got the same name. And you had Boris Johnson and a swathe of Tory uh, cabinet ministers in 2017 leaking their own phone numbers by accident because the Conservative Party designed a conference app which was, you know, so faulty that you could find the phone number of Boris Johnson. And as far as I know, he's still using that number to this very day, despite having uh, claimed to Lord Guy that he had lost that phone. So that's one of the things that I find really funny, which is that these are people who make all of these lofty claims about, you know, policing the border and being tough on crime and cracking down on terrorism, but they can't even use LastPass. You mentioned Suella Braverman. She is up next because, of course, Liz Truss isn't the only senior member of the government to have breached phone security protocols. Suella Braverman resigned as Home Secretary under Liz Truss for using her personal email account to send a confidential document to one of her political allies. Never mind, though, less than a week later, she was reappointed to the job by the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, who has said she has his, quote, full confidence. But it's now emerged that she broke the rules on six other occasions. It also turns out that there are some inconsistencies in her original account of what actually happened over that resignation. This is Braverman's resignation letter. In it, she simply says she sent the email to a, quote, trusted parliamentary colleague. And then she goes on to say, quote, as soon as I realized my mistake, I rapidly reported this on official channels and informed the cabinet secretary. What's not mentioned in that resignation letter is that Braverman's mistake wasn't just to send her document via the wrong channels, but also to CC it to the wrong person. Instead of going to her political ally, her email was received by a staff member of another MP. When they responded that she'd copied in the wrong person, she didn't rapidly report this on official channels, as her resignation letter suggests, but rather emailed back saying, quote, 
please can you delete the message and ignore? Thanks. Shortly afterwards, the recipient's boss, Tory MP, Andrew Percy, wrote this email to Braverman. Suella, I am really not sure that government documents should be being shared with members of your former campaign team via Gmail. Can you tell me what the ministerial code says on this and what the processes are in the Home Office for sharing of sensitive government documents via Gmail? Simply asking my team to delete this email and ignore it is not an acceptable response to what appears on the face of it to be a potentially serious breach of security. I am considering a point of order on this issue and have raised it with the chief whip. I hope an explanation will be forthcoming. You are nominally in charge of the security of this nation. We have received many warnings, even as lowly backbenchers, about cyber security. Now, it was only after Braverman had received that very pointed email, which you know, made it clear that she had been found out, the chief whip had been told, that she alerted the cabinet office to her mistake. So Ash, this is the, the second big security breach of the week. Is Braverman in any more trouble than Truss when it comes to, to, to this one, to her mishaps, let's call them? Liz Truss, at least her phone was hacked by the Russians, seemingly, whereas Suella Braverman was just giving it to any old right-wing Tory headbanger and his wife and dependents also, and also anyone who happens to share the same name as his, as his wife. And so I think that's, you know, kind of two different things. I mean, look, Liz Truss had about as much uh, political nous as one of those porcelain cats you see at a Chinese takeaway who just sort of gazes eyes wide open and the paw goes like that. But, you know, Suella Bradman was just handing this stuff out, which is absolutely ludicrous. And I think this also tells you something about who's really designing her policy platform and the nature of her rhetoric. Um, Suella Bradman is, is not a particularly imaginative politician. She's not a particularly bright politician. And really what she's doing is just regurgitating far-right talking points which have been laundered through the so-called common sense group of MPs, in particular its chair John Hayes, who back in 2005 had put together another group of uh, MPs to kind of uh, combat liberalism, by which he meant sort of social liberalism norms changing around things like, you know, gay relationships and the position of women, and multiculturalism. And that uh, parliamentary group of MPs, he gave the same slogan as Vichy France, faith, flag and family. And those are the kind of people that are influential when it comes to Suella Bradman. And those are the kind of people that she's running policy by. So it's not just a national security issue. It's also a party management one for Rishi Sunak. You know, he didn't invite John Hayes into his cabinet, and yet he's got him there anyway. Now he feels like John Hayes is on the inside pissing out instead of on the outside pissing in. Ash, a pleasure to be joined by you today. Good to have you back in Blighty. Yeah, man, it's so nice being here under this Home Secretary. I feel great. Uh, Well, welcome back in any case. Thank you for watching this evening. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.